This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Upcoming from Essential Tremors Presents Our annual 7th Stainine Festival in D.C. on Saturday, June 18th at Rhizome. This year's D.C. edition will feature 12 artists and 3 DJs spread over 10 hours. Get tickets and more information at 7thStay9.com or at EssentialPodcast.com. Also, Essential Tremors presents 7th Stay 9 Festival Milwaukee on Saturday, July 30th. Our inaugural Milwaukee version of the festival will feature 14 artists and run from 1 in the afternoon until midnight at Cactus Club. Get tickets and more information at 7thStay9.com or EssentialPodcast.com. I had just never seen somebody or heard music from a contemporary before, like somebody so close to my age and experience um, and kind of just social circle that made music that sounded like this. There were a couple people that I had heard before, but when I heard this 30 minute piece, it completely changed the way I thought about music. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. On our newest album, Everything Perfect is Already Here, San Antonio-based musician Claire Rousset employs found sounds to create sound collages that attempt to capture tiny, between-thoughts moments that often elude our notice. Her instruments, text-to-speech recordings, the sounds of her neighbor's lawnmower, and other everyday sonic minutiae, evoke a small and personal world that is easily fallen into. The first song Rousset chose as being formative for her was Becoming Typewriter by Ryu Hankil.
Um, the... The... Ryu Honkel track, Becoming Typewriter, was kind of an introduction to that kind of music. Um, like, my first introduction to that kind of, like, lowercase. Um, I think the genre people typically associate with that kind of, you know, like, sound art music making uh, is, like, the Onkyo scene in specifically Korea, um, which is where he's based. But that's the first time I heard any music that sounded like that, and the first time that I really resonated with music that was part of that kind of lowercase Onkyo, like, that world. Um, and obviously it informed my music using you know, like, uh, machines and devices that kind of vibrate the whole, the whole point of that scene is like really small, uh, sounds and like small gestures that from what I understand, um, rather than, you know, like making a big grand piece or something like that. A lot of the performances, uh, that they'll do are like acoustic, performances or um using electronics but using like really small bluetooth speakers or something so you'll be in a room with a table with a bunch of electronics on it and um they're the only amplification is coming through like phone speakers or bluetooth speakers so it's a very quiet music and all of the changes that are made throughout the performance are like very nuanced and sometimes really gradual so you might not notice a difference from like minute to minute but if you listen back to it over the course of 20 minutes, you'll notice kind of what the artist has intended to do or what's happening. A lot of improvisation is included in that as well, um, which obviously influenced my work a lot. I work with improvisation and a lot of non-musical sounds. You can put quotes around that. <laughs> um, and obviously this piece is really long and just one single track there's a couple versions of it out. Um, I think it's primarily available on CDR, but there is a full version of it on YouTube. So I think on the CD, it's broken up into a couple tracks, but on YouTube, it's one long piece. And if you listen to the CD, it kind of just flows all the way through. But it's a lot of, you know, you hear a literal typewriter and then a lot of like mechanical sounds and things like that. And I just never really thought to use those kinds of sounds in my music before uh, I heard you know, that track. Well, I'm, I'm familiar with the basic outline of your of your musical development, just from a couple of, uh, of stories that have been written, but you were a drummer, I guess, and then sort of shifted to becoming more of a percussionist, which is, you know, of, of course, more of a, um, um, a free ranging sort of uh, thing. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that shift and maybe how this piece entered into that or shaped it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been playing drums pretty much my whole life. I would still identify as a drummer or a percussionist, or I kind of use those two interchange. I kind of use them interchangeably. Um, but as a percussionist, this piece obviously stands out because the typewriter is a super percussive object machine. Um, you know, whatever, whatever way you're using it as a tool. Um, and that's kind of what I liked about it, but really going from playing the drum set and being a drummer to being more of a percussionist or more of a, um, sound artist or whatever 
label people like to use uh, to describe that kind of music, I realized that you could still have all of the things that go along with the drum kit, like polyrhythms and kind of using dynamics that vary throughout, you know, a piece and using different sounds and textures and everything that the drum kit, you know, you can use the drum kit for, but you could do it at a much smaller level, almost like a microscopic level. And this piece is obviously a really great example of that. And kind of going from that, following that trajectory from, you know, playing drums and it being a louder version of percussion to a more subtle, quieter, um, still percussive, but maybe more sound art performance style and recording style. And obviously now um, I've been using a lot of like synthesizers and strings and, and stuff like that in my music, but I really like to use drumming and percussion as almost like a springboard for everything that I do. So everything is still really rooted in percussion because that's the way that I learned music. And almost anything can be a percussion instrument. Like it's it's really funny. Um, Sarah Hennies is a friend of mine. So she says anything, like the percussionist is the only instrumentalist that doesn't have an instrument because everything is a percussion instrument. And I really like that. And obviously that's uh, applies to this piece as well. Uh, was this... It sounds like maybe this was more um, uh, kind of a signpost along the way than like the thing that turned you from, you know, a pop punk drummer into sort of the person who is the artist you are now. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I think everything is that way, though. Um, I don't really think there's an end goal or you know, like a desired destination in terms of genre or stylistic, you know, choices or anything like that. But this is something that definitely influenced me and more or less um, impacted the music that I make. And you can definitely hear things from this piece in, in my music or different techniques used in this piece in the things that I do. But as far as going from being like a pop punk drummer or like a rock drummer into whatever I'm doing now, I don't think what I'm doing now is necessarily what I'm going to do forever. Just like pop punk drumming, uh, everything kind of changes and shifts. And I think having a destination for like what you want to do is important, um, maybe in a short term. But as far as, you know, over the course of your life, you don't really want to have like a a goal stylistically or a genre necessarily that you're you're going towards The second song Rousset chose is essential to her formation as an artist was New Monkey by Elliot Smith here come the sidewalk boss again Telling me how I can't cave in That I'm a study in black Need a pat on the back I look up and smile A picture of dissatisfaction Yeah, Elliot Smith, New Monkey. All right. Um, so as someone who really was introduced to music and writing and making music as a drummer, I didn't have much exposure to the process of like songwriting from, you know, the very beginning of that 
like what makes a song. So as a drummer, I would always come in with a singer or a guitarist or somebody else that already had like a sketch or a skeleton of something that I would kind of work with them on and build out into whatever would become a song. Um, and it wasn't until the last couple of years where I really started examining, you know, like songwriting process, uh, processes and kind of the way that people build songs from nothing into what they become. And I think this is kind of the perfect song as an example of that, or to give an example. And really, I mean, Elliot Smith's one of the greatest songwriters that I've ever heard. And I think that's pretty universally agreed upon. Um, this song in particular, though, kind of resonates a little bit with my um, fondness for pop punk music. <laughs> and, you know, like really like poppy rock kind of arrangements. But as far as this specific track goes, it really did introduce me to the kind of the way that Ellie Smith uses harmony because on the guitar, which is not an instrument I know very well um, as a drummer, I've kind of had to pick up other things as I go along. Um, but this song, there's kind of this like descending thing where the root of the chord um, changes every measure, or every two measures, and it just keeps going down in half steps, uh, regardless of like whether it's in the key or not. And when I first heard the song, well, like five or six years ago, it like really blew my mind because it wasn't necessarily like an avant-garde piece or like experimental music or anything, but it was an example of somebody making very accessible pop music that I could sing along to that was still playing like, you know, like coloring outside the lines almost. And which really made me interested in songwriting and kind of using harmony and melody in my music instead of using, you know, solely rhythm and texture and, and other kind of tools like that. Um, Elliot Smith, obviously, there's a a whole other component to pop music, which is lyrics and, you know, a narrative and everything like that. And I think, um, not that he doesn't have songs about romantic relationships, but I do really like artists who can write songs that don't um, address romantic relationships at all or necessarily, like, isn't the focus of the song. So I really like this song because of that. Um, it's almost a little bit snarky, like making a uh, commentary on like music industry and stuff like that. So I think it's really interesting to write something that's so emotional and so pop oriented, but the harmonic direction is like kind of coloring outside the lines and it's not necessarily a straightforward um, narrative or like an accessible, you know, romantic narrative it's a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more it gives the listener some more room to kind of interpret it and i think leaving that space is kind of what makes it uh the great music that it is and i i really like to do that in my own music where i'm using you know whatever i'm doing or whatever music you're making leave it open enough to where anybody can kind of approach it and almost like you know put their own experiences or feelings onto it and get something back from it not necessarily like tie it down to this you know tightly wound perfect narrative or something like that you're listening to essential tremors after the break we'll hear more about our guests essential songs
Right, right. Well, it, it's interesting. I was I was going to ask. I mean, since you since you mentioned that, I mean, there are pieces of yours that I'm familiar with, like um, like it was always worth it. That has a pretty um, I don't want to say obvious, but pretty plain text or subtext, right, uh, to it. But then, I mean, there's there are people talking. There's 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 something going on there that's sort of uh, textual or personal, but it's not always obvious or or maybe apparently supposed to be obvious what right. it is or what it's supposed to mean. Yeah, I just. Um... I really like the idea of making something that can be interpreted by more than one kind of person. And I wasn't really, I wasn't really making music with that mindset for a really long time. And it's kind of a more recent development uh, as my eyes are opened more to the world and having, you know, more experiences. And as things change, I kind of like things to be able to be interpreted, you know, not just by one person. What would have been your mindset before then? Maybe making something a little more literal? Yeah, more literal or just maybe not having the tools or the experience or the knowledge to be able to do anything besides the really literal, straightforward version. Um, I wondered if you might have, uh, if Elliot Smith might not have gotten in there. Um, I, you know, I think about him in a way, uh, you know, I, I realize you probably um, came across him uh, kind of not necessarily at the time that he uh, was around originally, but um, you know when he first sort of became famous or, or, or you know small small f famous I guess uh, in the early '90s, and you know he was like he had his T-shirt on and his trucker cap and tattoos and stuff like everybody else, but he was such a contrast to so many other. Uh, of the the kind of you know hip happening things at the time you know he was like this uh, little quiet vulnerable guy and as you say he could be snarky and and you know he clearly had a lot more going on musically than a lot of his peers but um, there was also this sort of emotional vulnerable quality um, and unlike a lot of the you know the uh, grunge guys or whatever that were a lot of his contemporaries he wasn't screaming about it you know he was just he seemed very not like a lot of the other things that was going on at the time that made him stand out right i really like the idea of having you know that because you were talking about having um really emotional experiences and expressing that and having other things going on and i think taking that you know that hyper that hyper uh sensitive almost feeling and and writing about something that isn't romantic relationships or isn't screaming about it so it's like you know less overt in multiple ways right it's not as loud but it's also not necessarily talking about something that's everybody's experience but it's still that's like so sensitive and um so like eloquently put that it you know kind of rises above everything else that's going on at the time The final piece of music Rousset chose as being crucial to her was Silt by Kay Mulhern. Is it good? 
everything grew. We were lost. The burden of memory. We were lost. A flame. Burden of a flame. Fence and pegs. A flame. Burden of a flame. lost. The burden of a memory. Fence and pegs. The burden of memory. Burden of a lost. A flame. Fence and so this one is kind of an oddball um basically this is a piece made by my friend kiera who released it as k malhern and it came out i believe in 2019 um and it's a single piece available on cd uh and Honestly, it's very similar to the Ryu Hankel piece that we were talking about earlier in terms of the way that it informed the way I think about music, the way I make music. It's um, never seen somebody or heard music from a contemporary before, like somebody so close to my age and experience um, and kind of just social circle that made music that sounded like this. There were uh, a couple people that I had heard before, but when I heard this 30-minute piece, 30 minutes or so, um, it completely changed the way I thought about music. The form of it is something that I'd never really encountered before. I didn't really know where it was going the whole time I was listening to it the first few times. Um, and just kind of the variety of things and sounds and ideas used within one piece like it never stops, right? It's not divided into tracks and regardless of however you listen to it, it's all just, it's always one single piece and how it changes so much throughout, but still has this weird cohesive feeling. Um, that's kind of something that really drew me to it. And I listen to it a lot. And honestly, just the sonic quality of it is so fantastic. Uh, <laughs> which is something I am not very good at, uh, Fidelity is not my strong suit, but Kira's music is, is amazing. And I had never really heard anybody making it, not to mention somebody that like, you know, was a friend of a friend or I was really closely, um, or somebody, I guess that I could access. Uh, and since hearing that we've become friends and I told her how much I really appreciate her making that music, but just the way that everything unfolds throughout that piece and going from, you know, loud to quiet, which is very pop punk, uh, not necessarily in terms of genre for that piece. But a lot of the things that I like about music, regardless of genre is, uh, you know, is apparent in that piece and is included in a lot of Kira's work. So Silt was my introduction to her work. And she's since put out a couple different things. She also put out an LP recently on the wonderful recital label run by Sean McCann. Um, but, and a couple, I think, internet radio pieces, if I'm not mistaken. But this was the first thing that I heard from her that was like a piece that she put out as, you know, herself, it's one thing. It's not just on the internet, it's a CD. And it really, I don't know, it kind of just struck me in a way that music hadn't struck me in a long time. You know, I wasn't familiar with the piece beforehand, and I was only, um, since it's, you know, relatively obscure, I was only able to hear um, an excerpt. Right, um, yeah. But uh, I was wondering if you might, um, so I don't have a sense of the whole 
piece, but I was wondering if you might have um, um, uh, latched onto it in part because of her use of the voice, uh, which is the, th- Most the thing that struck me uh, about the, the bit that I heard of it. Yeah, I think the excerpt that's available, you can hear, I think it's like a clock sound. You'll hear like the ticking sound and the voice at the same time. And I think that was really what got me the first time. But there's also a whole section where there's really low frequencies um, that are kind of buried that come up and down throughout um, a certain section of it. But the use of the voice is really interesting because there's so many mechanical sounds like the clock and, you know... um, different electronic sounds and then just the vulnerability of the voice that comes in and specifically a woman's voice. Um, and just like how jarring it is when it initially comes in compared to what you're listening to. Cause it is relatively challenging music. Um, and there is kind of, I think, a something that I don't necessarily like about music that sounds like this a lot of the time is there isn't really any emotion that you can, or overt emotion that you can pick up on. And I think adding the voice to it is the easiest and maybe the most direct way to kind of add that element to the music. Not that everything always needs to be emotional or emotionally driven, but she does a very good job with this uh, piece, like adding that element, specifically the human voice and like a woman's voice to really it kind of changes the piece after you listen to it and then the voice comes in and it becomes something completely different. And it's just so emotionally charged, not because of what she is saying necessarily, um, but just because there's like that human element that is just kind of like thrust upon you all of a sudden. You know, it's funny. I think that that's one of the things that I found interesting about your own music is Um, And, you know, that's come up in this conversation, I think, uh, uh, sort of indirectly is a a sort of restive quality and and that, you know, it's not going to do, you know, one thing for 20 minutes or something, you know, you're, you're sort of, it feels like you're exploring and fortunately finding things that, um, you know, interest you and are going to interest listeners. And, um, you know, maybe it's part of that uh, process that you're talking about of not just finding something that works and sticking with it or not just, um, um, you know, uh, uh, not just settling for, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that you know how to do, uh, you know, uh, trying things, whether they may or may not work. I don't know. Yeah, no, definitely. I really like the idea. Um, Joe McPhee has this uh, saying where he's, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. And the only thing he knows how to do is be Joe McPhee, which is himself. And I think that's a really good way to view the, you know, artistic process or, you know, the way people make work. At least for me, I think that's more important than anything is, uh, unless the tools or the outcome and, um, more so like, taking chances or really just having experiences and communicating them I think is is more important than the tools you use to do that Um, at least for my music I know a lot of people are really connected to their instrument or connected to a certain genre for different reasons but um, a lot of the things I seek out in music definitely align themselves with that Joe McPhee kind of mentality
has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.